You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We come today to Acts chapter 9 in our ongoing series in the book of Acts, and In Acts 9, we come to the account of one of the most significant conversions in history. Uh, The conversion of one Saul of Tarsus, who we know better, of course, as Paul the Apostle. I'm going to use both names interchangeably through the sermon. I, I tried to be consistent in my practice of it and forget about it. So sometimes I'm going to say Paul, sometimes I'm going to say Saul. You know who I mean. Um... This account is repeated uh, three times in the book of Acts, Uh, right here in Acts 9, and then again in Acts 22, and then in Acts 26, Uh, since repetition is one of the ways that the Bible uh, emphasizes the importance of something, uh, then Paul's conversion must be important. It must say something important to you, and I believe it does. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. It's printed in your worship folder uh, for you. And I'm going to ask if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, And he regained his sight, 
Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Lord, since we do not live by bread alone, but also by every word that comes from your mouth, would you make us hungry right now for your word food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the bread of heaven. Amen. Well, to be a Christian, you have to undergo a conversion, right? Goes by different words in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes it uses that word, converted, being converted. Sometimes it says being born again. Other times it'll say uh, repenting uh, or turning to God or turning away from sin to God. All of those uh, are biblical ways to talk about this process uh, of conversion. If you're a Christian here today, you've been converted. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you have not yet experienced conversion. The big takeaway from Paul's conversion here is that even the, even Jesus' most committed opponents, right, like Paul, and maybe like some of you, even Jesus' most committed opponents can and do become part of Jesus' family, uh, become uh, his faithful servants through the transforming power of the gospel. Jesus' most committed opponents can and do become part of Jesus' family and his faithful servants. How? Through the transforming power of the gospel. And that's what you see in a conversion. So what, what is it about conversion? What is it? How does it work? What does it do? Well, let's answer those questions by looking at Paul's conversion here, and we're going to unpack it under three headings that really sort of describe the process of conversion. First, there's opposition to Jesus. Second, there is a confrontation with Jesus. And then third, it's serving under Jesus. So opposition to Jesus, confrontation with Jesus, serving under Jesus. Jesus. So first, opposition uh, to Jesus. You know, every conversion, every single conversion starts right here. Now, I understand Saul's opposition uh, to Jesus is way over the top, right? None of you has done or is doing, I trust, uh, what Saul did to Christians, Uh, but the Bible is super clear on this, right? Every person opposes Jesus. Prior to conversion, every person on the planet opposes Jesus. And the reason is because of sin. Sin, One of the things that sin does is is it it has hardwired our human nature to stiff-arm God. That's what we naturally do doesn't matter whether you're religious or non-religious, right? 
uh, until you are generally, genuinely converted to faith in Jesus, you're going to oppose him. Now, that's not to say, and I'm not saying, right, that you are therefore as evil and as immoral uh, and as corrupt as you could be. Uh, not, that's, not, that's not the case. Uh, no, the way, the, the dynamic of sin here, the way that sin works in us is that it, it convinces every person, it convinces you that you don't really need God to live your life. That, that you can justify your own existence. That you can create uh, your own uh, self-worth, your own identity. Uh, that you can justify yourself uh, completely independent of God. Right? That's, that's really what's, what sin does and, and what we naturally believe. Um, now, if you're a religious person and you, and you acknowledge God, uh, what that will often mean in practice is that even though you believe in God, what, what, what you're doing is that on your own, because of this, this sinful impulse, uh, you, you, you believe you can be good enough for God, and that becomes sort of what you do. That becomes your, uh, one of your life missions, right? To prove that you are worthy uh, of God, deserving of God's love and acceptance. In fact, you are so capable that you can, in fact, obligate God to bless you by your uh, behavior, right? Now, that's exactly how Paul thought, and that was, that's the dynamic of Paul's behavior here. It's why he was so zealously persecuting Christians, right? Did you notice he's now going, he's gotten extradition papers to go out of Israel into a foreign country to drag, them, drag Christians back to Jerusalem for trial, where they're being imprisoned and executed, Right? He, why is he so zealously persecuting them like that? Be- because he's working so hard to establish his own righteousness before God, right? To show God that he's worthy of, of God's love by doing what? By putting down who he believed were God's enemies. If you're not a religious person, though, I mean, you're not then living for God, trying to prove yourself to God, but essentially you're doing the same thing. You are zealously creating your own morality, your own identity, your own righteousness, apart from any God, right? Um, it's, you, you, your, your life becomes an effort in defining yourself, justifying your own existence, establishing your own self-righteousness. Now, the way you know this is going on in your life, that you are sinfully sort of self-justifying, sinfully developing a self-righteousness, is how you react. The way you know is how you react when someone challenges your, your, your own righteousness, challenges the way you're justifying yourself. Right? Um, because self-justification, self-righteousness is so personal, it's so tied to your what you do, so tied to your own identity, that when it's challenged, right, self-justifying, self-righteous people tend to lash out 
in a kind of self-defensive anger. And that's, that is what explains Paul here, right? Um, the early Christians were going around saying, God is so holy and so righteous that we cannot be righteous enough for God. We need the righteousness of another. We need the righteousness of the Messiah. We need the righteousness of Jesus. And when you, we believe in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. See, and, and that drove Paul crazy, right? Because it was saying, in effect, that his whole life project of developing his own righteousness and proving himself to God wasn't enough. That it wasn't currency with God. And so he, in self-defense, he lashes out. He makes himself feel better about his self-justification by silencing the Christians who were undercutting his self-justification. You see, it in... You know, in, in lesser ways t- today, right? Christians fighting Christians. Uh, Christians putting down uh, other Christians because, um, you know, w- I'm, uh, w- I'm a Christian that thinks that, uh, you know, you can never you know, touch a drop of alcohol. You can never touch tobacco. You can never go to an R movie. And there are these Christians over there smoking it up and drinking it up. And go into the movies and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put them down. I'm gonna treat them as lesser Christians or maybe not even Christians because they are interrupting or they are undercutting my self-justification project. Those Christians over there don't vote for the right candidates. Those Christians over there don't wear masks or wear masks, right? Pick, you know, the battle of the day. It's, it's, it's this, you know, we're, we're, we're justifying ourselves. We're building up our own righteousness in these things. And when it's challenged, we get angry. But it happens in the non-religious arena too, of course. And I, I ran across a couple of examples of it just this week, um, both from the sports world. You may have seen these stories. The, the first one involves Tony Dungy. Uh, Tony Dungy is a former NFL coach, an outspoken Christian. Um, he announced on his social media accounts that he was going to be attending for the first time the March for Life in Washington, D.C., which happened on Friday. As soon as that announcement hit uh, hit his social media account, he, uh, he faced withering attacks from the pro-choice community. I mean, they just went off on him in real anger. Um, he, he was, uh, people calling him out as a, as a shameful right-wing extremist and a bigot who doesn't care about other people's rights and doesn't, doesn't care about women. Right? All because he said he was going to participate in this march. It's kind of an over-the-top angry reaction. What's, you know, what's going on? Well, um, you know, just like Paul lashed out, these pro, the pro-choice community lashed out because Dungy's participation in that march was undercutting their self-justifying morality. 
different sport, Ivan uh, Provorov. Good. Member of the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Flyers hockey team. Uh, he, he announced that he was not going to participate in a, uh, a pre-game L, uh, pride event, LBGT, LGBTQ pride event on the ice before the game. And uh, he, he did it courteously, did it politely. He said he was refusing to participate on, on religious grounds. He was happy to have his other teammates uh, do whatever they wanted to do. He was just going to not participate uh, because of religious convictions. Again, as soon as that got out, it was a firestorm uh, of anger directed at, at, at uh, Provorov on, on one national network program, a, a, na- a sports commentator actually suggested that he should leave our country, go back to Russia, and join the Russian army so he can fight in the Ukraine. You know, really? <laughs> right? They don't, he, 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 he did something they don't agree with, so leave the country fight a war, and hopefully die in it. Um, Why? Why that reaction? Because Provorov's refusal to participate in that event challenged the LGBTQ self-justifying, self-righteous morality. His refusal was, was viewed as a direct attack on their identity. Very much like what, what Paul did. So listen, sin, bottom line, sin makes us oppose Jesus. Right? And at the same time, it makes us ungracious and unkind and angry toward people who don't agree with us. How do we change that? Right? Well, we've got to deal with the sin, right? Which brings us to the second thing. Getting confronted by Jesus, okay? Second, second part of the process, confrontation with Jesus. Every conversion starts with opposition and then it moves to confrontation. Jesus intervenes in your life and confronts you and confronts your sin. Now every confrontation is, of course, not going to be as dramatic uh, or as obviously supernatural as Paul's was. Um, but even without the dramatics, right, take away the dramatics, essentially the same thing that happened to Paul happens to you if you're converted. Notice a couple of things here. First, right, this confrontation with Jesus happens at God's initiative, right? It's God's initiative and it's God's choice, right? Saul wasn't uh, asking for it. He wasn't even looking for it. But when he was knocked down on the Damascus road uh, by the Lord Jesus in a kind of personal lightning storm, and, and that's kind of what the language suggests there. It wasn't like a spotlight. It was like lightning, uh, um, 
when, when, when the Lord knocked him down in that, uh, in, in that lightning storm, um, it is because as the Lord Jesus told Ananias himself in verse 15, Paul was Jesus' choice. He's my chosen instrument. Now, I know uh, that we, we actually make a choice. When we, when we are converted, we make a choice. We make a decision to put our faith in Jesus and to follow Him and to obey Him. Uh, we, that, in that sense, we make a choice. But the reality here and what this conversion shows us is that behind your choice is the Lord's prior choice of you. Right? It's mysterious. We don't see it happening. We don't really know it's happened until, until the conversion is effected. It's mysterious, but it's beautiful. Because it, it shows what? It shows that you're wanted. Right? You've been chosen, right? You're, you're, you were sought and found. No grounds for, for arrogance there. Right? We, we did nothing. Uh, the Lord just chose us. I, I'm, I'm reminded of that story that I've told before and I couldn't, couldn't find it um, uh, this week, but it was that story about the, the uh, school, young, you know, elementary school kids and the one, uh, and they're in a dance class. They're at the, like that age where, you know, they're starting to do co-ed dancing. And, and one of the boys, the cool kid, the cool boy in the class his Sunday school teacher, who was an aide in the class, tell, told him to pick Mary uh, when it was time to pick a partner. And, and Mary was the uncool girl and was never chosen. And, and when it came for the, the day, right, he comes in. This is a true story. He, he walks in. He, we were sort of ham-handed back in those days with these sorts of things. No, there's no way this would happen today. But I mean, Guys would go in one at a time to pick their partner. There are all the girls sitting there. And Mary wouldn't even look up because she's been through this drill countless times before and has never chosen, right? And against all of his coolness, he heard himself saying, I choose Mary. And and he talks about how how he... she turns and there's this, on her face is this simultaneous mixture of, of joy and embarrassment and pride. And she walks out on his arm, he said, just like a princess. And he'd, he'd never forgotten that. We can all probably think of times when we've been chosen or wished we had been chosen. And uh, Conversion is that. The Lord comes to you and says, I choose you. I choose you. It's wonderful. Mysterious, but wonderful. Um, Notice also that for all of the direct involvement of the Lord here, Jesus still uses people, doesn't he? Right, what Jesus himself started on the Damascus Road, Ananias... uh, in the name and the power of Jesus in the city of Damascus in the house of Judas finishes. 
right? And this is how conversions go. And in fact, in our day, uh, you know, the, the sort of the laboring or of conversions is handled by people that the Lord is working through, right? Um, and, and a conversion is not any less effective if, 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 if it's intermediated by a person rather than, you know, some direct supernatural intervention uh, of Jesus. God chooses to use other people to bring, bring us to himself. You can probably think back to your own conversion, the people that God used in your conversion. And, and, the, and the fact of the matter is he's going to use you to bring uh, other people to himself. You will be somebody else's Ananias, which is exciting. But the most important thing we should see here is that when Paul is confronted, uh, the confrontation is a very specific one. It's, 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 it's limited in a sense. It, he's confronted really with one main thing, and that is the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Now, the message is communicated to him in a very direct way, in a very personal way, right? He actually sees and talks with the crucified and risen Jesus. And when he is picked up off the Damascus road, the Jesus Paul knew the Jesus Paul knew was dead is now the Jesus he knows is alive. Right? He got it. And that's not just some random supernatural fact. Right? That Jesus, you know, uh, was killed and then rose again. It's that, that isn't a fact that just sort of randomly floating out there. Uh, it, it is... It's, that is a personal fact. Um, Paul ultimately realized there's more to this conversion story than Luke tells. This is a summary here. Uh, you get some more detail in, the, in Acts 22 and Acts 26. You get other, more, other detail in, in references that Paul makes in his letters. But there was a, there's a process in this, part of which is those three days of darkness and praying, uh, where he where he realizes that Jesus wasn't just killed and raised, but that Jesus was killed and raised for him. Right? That Jesus died to satisfy divine justice for Paul's sin. And he was raised to bring Paul to glory, to eternal life. Same for you and me. Now, we don't get that message. You and I don't get that message in a direct confrontation with Jesus, but we do get it, right, through the Bible uh, as it is illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit, right, as, it, as we begin to understand it. These are spiritual things. They're spiritually discerned, and we don't begin to discern them until the Holy Spirit works in us. Uh, and you see... The, along with Paul are people where, who weren't illuminated at this time, right? Uh, the people with Paul, uh, part of his entourage, verse 7, aren't really with the program, right? They heard the voice, they, but they didn't see anything. They were standing around, confused, didn't know what to say. They were speechless. And friends, you know, the same thing happens in our conversions, Right? 
as the Holy Spirit confronts you through the Word, right? You start as, as that, that supernatural process and, and you're not necessarily feeling anything supernatural, but as you're reading the Word, you're beginning to see and hear Jesus in a new way, right? The words are, gonna be, are, are beginning to lift off the page, right? Fly right at you. And, and you're beginning to understand them and, and see how they apply to you. And Jesus starts making sense. And the dots in your life are, are starting to get connected because of Jesus. But, but the people all around you are going, what is wrong with you? Right? What's happening with you? They don't understand you. They may be confused. They may, may not know what to say to you. It's because they aren't hearing and seeing what the Holy Spirit is showing to you. Be patient with them. Pray for them. Pray that, pray that the Lord will show them. Pray that the Lord will use you in that process. One last point on this confrontation with Jesus. How do you know you've had a a genuine uh, confrontation with the Lord? I mean, it was one thing for Paul to know, right? Uh, It's a little, perhaps a little more uh, difficult or vague for us, you know, to discern whether we've had a genuine confrontation uh, with Jesus. Well, one, one of the reasons, one of the ways you know that you've had a genuine confrontation with Jesus is if the center of gravity of your life is shifted from you to Jesus, right? It's um, up, you know, up before conversion, all of us more or less live for ourselves, right? And even if we're living for God, like Paul was, it was about ourselves. It was about, you know, for Paul, it was all about himself. It was about what I was doing, what I had to do to prove myself to God. Um, and uh, so, so you've, um, and so, so since it's been all about us, uh, all of a sudden, things start becoming more about Jesus. We're focused, you start focusing less on yourself and more on Jesus. And you start having a more accurate perception of, of, of the Lord. You know, there are a lot of people, I know so many of my unbelieving friends say this, and I suspect yours do too, who will admit, maybe out of politeness, uh, because they know, you know, I'm a minister. But they'll, they'll, often many of them will acknowledge that God exists, but they will say something like, but my God, right, is a God of love, right? He's a God, he doesn't judge anyone. He loves everyone, right? He doesn't make distinctions about behavior, people, or anything. Um, and, uh, you know, that starts to go away. If you've had a genuine confrontation with Jesus, you, what happens is you're, you're becoming overcome by a growing sense of the, both the reality and the majesty uh, uh, of Jesus, right? It, it, in other words, you, 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 you start beginning to deal with the real God rather than the God you've made up. Right, the God of your imagination. That f- God of love is a f- is a phony God. Now, God is a God of love, of course, 
But he's also a God of justice. And there's no love without justice. You wake up to the fact that you're dealing with God. And because he's God, he can correct you. He can disagree with you. He can command you. He can discipline you. I mean, that kind of goes with being God. Right? When we define God and what we'll, we will accept from him or not accept from him, who's, being, who's trying to be God there? Yeah, you don't have a real God. Right? You just, you're, that's just a wax nose that you can bend in any shape. All of a sudden, you've, you, when, you've been, when you know that, man, I've, I've, I've been confronted by God and that means you know, I've got I've to listen to him. Um, you see it in Paul. I mean, virtually immediately, what does Paul say? He calls Jesus Lord, right? And, 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 and he starts taking directions from him. Paul, the big order giver, becomes the order taker. And it, it almost seems, doesn't it, like, like Jesus is putting it in Paul's face a little bit, right? What's he say? Get up, go to Damascus, wait for further instructions. That's kind of a tough order. Go to Damascus, wait there for further instructions. What's Paul's response? Yes, sir. He goes uh, and, and obeys. You see, there, you, you've had a genuine confrontation with the Lord when, when a humility uh, is born and, and, and you, uh, the, the humility of the creature uh, who's been confronted by the Creator. Friends, the gospel thrills us, and it, and it has to thrill us. Right? It's thrilling to think about God coming to us, God running to us, and, and, and laying his life down for us that we might live. But friends, it doesn't just thrill, it also humbles us. It puts us in our place. And it's, and, and it's good, to, that's a good thing, it's good to know our place. Humble people are better people. Humble, humble people are close to God's heart. Okay, third, third heading. So we've seen what? Every conversion starts with opposition to Jesus. That's what sin does. Um, every conversion then moves to a confrontation with Jesus. Um, and, and, uh, and now... Um, the last heading, serving under Jesus. Um, you know, if, if, if you've been converted, right, the last stage of conversion is, and, and this really is what I've just sort of touched on, it's expansion of what I just touched on, is that there's going to be life change, right? It's, it, 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 you're going to live differently than you did before. You're going to start doing things that, that make no sense except that Jesus is in your life. Right? Can you look at your life and go, am I, am I doing things? Am I making decisions that, would, would, that, that make no sense other than the fact that Jesus is in my life? I mean, Ananias, right? A- Ananias going to visit the man who, who had the warrant for his arrest. Who does that? 
right? You don't voluntarily go to the man who's got the warrant for your arrest. Who does that? The man to whom Jesus has said, go to that man. Lay your hands on him. Pray for him. Um, you know, you'll, you'll have friends wonder why, why you um, are, are, are doing certain things. Um, you know, why you're getting on an airplane and flying to a dangerous part of the world to help out missionaries. Sometimes you may ask yourself, what am I doing? I, I've told you the story before when we, when we moved down to Escondido, right? Sold the house in, in Orange County and we got a, I didn't know Escondido got a, got a apartment in a not so great part of town and, and uh, unfurnished. The only thing I had in my car when I signed the lease was a um, beach chair. So I get the keys, I go to this crummy apartment, I open, I stick this beach chair in the middle of the, and I sit down in it and I go, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, what am I doing with my life? Right? They, we, we do things that, uh, that make no sense to the world because Jesus is in our lives. Um, you'll welcome and love people that you'd never welcome and love otherwise. Right? I, I love the first words of Ananias to Saul, don't you? What's the, what are the first words out of his mouth? Surprising words, really. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Uh, you, you know, just, just imagine how that must have affected Saul, right? As he's, he's been confronted by Jesus, his whole world has been rocked, right? Everything he believed has been proved to be untrue. And he's been confronted by the risen Jesus. He's had three days, he's praying, and, and, and he knows he's in Damascus and he's there to wipe out the Christian community. And the first Christian he talks to puts his hands on him and calls him brother. I mean, think, just think about the emotive uh, content there, right? Um, in that moment, Ananias was being very much like his Lord, Jesus. Um, I, uh, I, I was thinking of this story, the, the, the miracle account uh, that's told in three of the four gospel accounts of Jesus where he heals the, the, the unclean woman who uh, has this chronic bleeding issue. And because of that chronic bleeding issue, she has for 12 years been unclean, right? Which means she, she's been banished from her home, from her family, from her neighbors, uh, from her synagogue. Uh, she, she hasn't re- probably, well, had, for certain, has not experienced really a genuine touch of a human being in 12 years. I mean, it's, it's a tragic story, right? And, and, and in desperation, she does what she knows she shouldn't do, right? Goes into that crowd and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And, and, and Jesus senses that, that, she's, that she's been healed, that the power's gone out from him, and he turns to her. And do you remember the first word he says, Jesus says to her? Daughter. Daughter. 
very, it's unusual Jesus to do that. But in this case, just again, just think about this woman who's been, who essentially has, been, has no family, no friends, and, and Jesus looks her in the eye and says, daughter, right? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's incredible. A converted person welcomes the unwelcome into the family. Because that's what Jesus does. Think, I still think about junior high. I moved in the middle of seventh grade, and so I show up at you know seventh grade junior high class, and and I will always be thankful for a, a, a young man named Gordon Woodhead. Sad name. But a great guy. There I was at my locker before lunch, thinking, what am I going to do at lunch? Right? I don't know anybody. And, and Gordy comes up to me and introduces himself, and he says, here, come, come eat lunch with us, I'll introduce you around. Can you believe that? Seventh grader? Gift of the Lord. But that, that's that... That's, I've never forgotten him or that sense of welcome. And that's what, that's what Jesus does. And that's what we do as, as Jesus' people. L- last point here, closing up, about serving under Jesus. Two, two other ways your life will change uh, if you've really been converted, right? Uh, is that you'll start doing the two things that Paul is told to, to do here. Uh, first, Carry the name of Jesus to the world, verse 15, and suffer for the sake of Jesus' name, verse 16. Now, since the last quarter of last year, we've been talking a lot about this responsibility this, uh, on, on us as Jesus' people, as converts, uh, to, to get Jesus' name out there. Right and um, and we've uh, and carrying his name into our neighborhoods and our jobs and our schools and to the world through missions, uh, and we're growing in that. I see it. We see it. We're 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 growing in that. And as we've as we're focusing on it and praying about it, and that's wonderful. But why does Jesus call us to suffer? It's a strange. Thing. I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for my name. Is that, I mean, is Jesus being vindictive there? Is that just payback to Paul? Right? He was a pretty nasty guy, so uh, I'm going to treat him pretty nasty? Going to make him suffer? No, that's, that, that's not what's going on. The reason Paul is commanded to suffer, is essentially told he's going to suffer a lot in the, in the name, for the name of Jesus, is, is because that's what love does. Love suffers. Love moves forward by suffering. Because love is about what? Love is always about the other. Love is about building the others, others up. And to build others up, more often than not, you have to go down. Right? And that's hard. That's, that's suffering. That's sacrifice. Right? Christians 
Converted Christians grow in their self-sacrifice. Now we do it unevenly and we fail often and God is gracious and the Lord forgives us. But we are people who are growing in self-sacrifice because the Lord we serve sacrificed himself for us. Right? Think about what happened to Paul here, right? Paul, Paul is struck blind for th- and, and then shoved into darkness in a strange house for three days, right? Well, Jesus Christ wasn't just struck blind, he was struck dead. And he wasn't three days uh, in a room in a house, he was three days in the ground, dead. For you. That's what Jesus did for us. He sacrificed that much. And if we know that, is there, any, is there really any other way for a Christian to live knowing what Jesus did to give us life? Really? Right? There isn't. The, the only appropriate, moral, sensible, reasonable response for the self, to the self-sacrifice of Jesus that saved me is to turn around and to the extent I can, by his power, extend that same sort of self-sacrificial love to other people. If I do anything less, I'm, 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 I'm really denigrating what Jesus did for me. But the kicker here is, and I'm close with this, is that we don't do that in our own power because it's hard, and we don't do it alone, right? Verse four, Jesus' words to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Right? It's, it's an interesting uh, thing Jesus says there. Because f- certainly from Saul's point of view, he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He thought Jesus was dead. He, he was persecuting Christians. Uh, but what he discovers right there is that when he was persecuting those Christians, whether they're in Jerusalem or whether they're in the Damascus, he was persecuting Jesus. And that's how closely Jesus binds himself to you. It's how, how closely Jesus you know, is, is, is in union with you when you put your faith in him. He is with you, friends, even if you don't, you don't see him, you don't feel him, he's with you right now. And he's with you when you do the scary stuff. When you do the stuff out there in the world that you would only do because you know Jesus. When you're, when, you're, when you're sharing the gospel with someone and it's intimidating and it's scary, Jesus is with you. He'll empower you. He'll give you the words to say. He'll give you the ears to listen. He's with you when you're sacrificing for the good of another. Right? When you're maybe deflecting credit for a work project to another person. Right? Out of love for that person. Doing the right thing. Even when it's hard, Jesus is there. He's with you. He knows what you're going through. He's going through it with you. And he will get you through. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus is that good. We have, our Lord and our Savior is that good. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this conversion account uh, of Paul, what it teaches us about our own conversions. Um, Thank you for uh, choosing us. And Lord, that doesn't make us proud. It makes us incredibly humble. Um, For we know we're not worthy of your choice. And, And we don't live up consistently, Lord, we don't live up consistently to what you have done for us. But we ask you, Lord, by your spirit to, uh, as you indwell us, empower us to, to be the, the self-sacrificing, loving, suffering, sharing people um, that reflect you, your character. Um, and forgive us when we fail. Um, Thank you. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.